I've got a, to be honest with you, a long sermon here, which I'm not sure I'll get right through, so we may have to break it at some point and pick it up next week. We're in Hebrews 12, starting at verse 14. Last Sunday, uh, following on from Hebrews, uh, the beginning of Hebrews 12, eyes on Jesus, running with endurance the race set before us, receiving the correction of our loving Heavenly Father who's disciplining us so that we, we may share in His holiness. That, what a profound thought that is. We'll come back to that again. But there are some things here that Hebrews says we are to pursue along the way. There are some immediate goals. It's not just long-term goal. There are some immediate goals, some stages along the way. And here they are. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue peace. The second great law, commandment, after you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with your mind, with all your strength, is you will love your neighbor as you love yourself. Yes? So, if you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, or in the way that you love yourself, you will pursue peace with everyone. Because I don't know anybody yet, well, apart from some sick individuals, who don't actually want peace. Yeah? yeah? Jesus said, salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Talking about rock salt, which has rock and salt in it, yes? And when the salt's all leached out of it, you're left with rock. Well, you don't want to chew rock, you want some salt. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Have salt. Salt is about truthfulness, honesty, openness, integrity. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Again, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In other words, they're, they're becoming like their father. They're carrying their father's image when they're peacemakers. Paul writes elsewhere in Romans, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Not just Christians, all men. But then he talks specifically about, about us as, as a Christian community. He says, so then, we pursue the things. We pursue, get the word? We pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. Peace with all men, with everybody out there, with all the world is possible only within the limits of what is right. We can't dumb down the truth, we can't compromise with evil for the sake of a, of a so-called peace. You know, that was the problem, of course, with uh, the 1930s. The appeasement, they tried to have peace with Hitler and others, and there was no peace because they were just too, too wicked to make peace. They were too deceitful to make peace. They wanted to conquer. They wanted to subjugate peoples to, to their evil empires. So you can't make peace with evil. But even when people hit us with evil, we can be peaceable in how we respond. We don't return evil for evil and hatred for hatred. Right? So as much as lies in you, to quote the King James, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. But in the church, in our Christian community, we are to build one another up. So let me give you some headlines on how to build... Oh, I haven't put it up there. How to pursue peace with everyone. Firstly, it's a case of attitude. If you want to build peace with people, brothers and sisters particularly, start by ceasing to resent them, despise them, compete with them, covet what they have. Check your attitude. 
Regard everyone as at least your equal, at least your equal. Recognize too that in some ways they may be greater than you. So that God, those whom God appoints as church leaders have greater authority and responsibility than you. And you should pay careful attention to what they tell you. All right? So only in that respect, not in every respect, they're not like way up there in your day, way down there. But in some respect, some people may have greater intelligence. Some people may handle greater wealth. That's, a, that's God's business. But you regard people as at least your equal and recognize in some ways that they are more than you are. And you accept that. You're not envious about it. You're not resentful about it. That will work to peace. Then deal with how we speak. See, strife and jealousy and anger and tempers and disputes and slanders and gossip and arrogance and disturbances, to quote 2 Corinthians, do not promote peace, do they? And another scripture says we're to put those things away from us. Ephesians 4 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So attitude, but then the way we speak. And I can't think of a word beginning with A for that, so I'm stuck on that one. Attitude of heart, the way we handle our conversation, the way we speak about people, the way we speak about ourselves. You know, put away some things that come out of our mouths because we deal with the attitude. Then, choose to pursue what makes peace and building up others. In other words, in words and in actions. To pursue is positive, not merely negative. And in fact, this is really the whole thing about sin and righteousness. We are called not just to deal with our sin, to put to death sin, but to positively live righteously. And the more you concentrate on what is positive, the more you recognize what's negative, and you won't go there. You say, I'm not no, 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 that's not fitting, that's not suitable, that's not, that's not good. Because you're pursuing something which is right and good and holy and true. So the question is, what is positive in building up relationship, in building one another up, in encouraging one another? That's pursuing peace. It works out a heart settled in peace. Peace towards others comes from a part that is settled in the peace of God and the grace and wisdom of God. Let me quote here James, good old James. He writes a bit like one of the, the, the writers of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it's earthly, natural, demonic. But where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above, the wisdom from heaven, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, full of good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Amen. So pursue peace. Make it a goal. Aim at it. Yeah? Paul had to write a letter and tell two ladies, sorry ladies, but it was two ladies in a particular church, I beseech Eodius and Syntyche to be at peace with one another. To sort it out. To settle their dispute. It's not good. Yeah? 
be at peace. Pursue it. Make it a real goal. Can't have this. Got to sort this. Got to get this straight. Got to pursue it. Then pursue sanctification. Sanctification is an English word. The word behind it, the Greek word, means to set apart. You you take from this group here and you put over it, because this now is special. It's set apart. It's set apart for purpose. Man goes into a a place and there's all sorts of pots and things and containers and vessels, but he chooses that one and he puts it over here because he has a purpose for it. We are set apart by God for himself. We are sanctified by by the will of God to be his people and to live for him. And our response to that action and wisdom of God is to set ourselves apart for him. Pursue sanctification. We've already read in Hebrews 12, uh, 10, that God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Holiness is what it looks like to live a separated life. We're to seek sanctification, to pursue it. And holiness is not just a moral life, a life of discipline and self-denial. I said last week, it's a Godward life. It's a life which is centered on him. And the practices of holiness and disciplines of grace are to pursue a Godward life. It's not just handling a list of do's and don'ts. That's kind of legalism. It's about a life that's so devoted to God, you begin to judge things as being right or wrong, even if you can't find a scripture for them. Scripture doesn't talk about smoking, doesn't talk about drug taking. How do you discern those things? Well, there's nothing in the Bible about it. No, you make a decision because your heart is Godward. Does this honor him? So Jesus talked about you give and you pray and you fast so that you'll you and he will reward you openly. Sanctification is a process in our lives worked into us and through us by the Holy Spirit whereby all that Jesus has won on the cross becomes effective and fruitful in us. It's progressive and increasing. We are becoming more and more what we are called to be in Jesus. It's working in us by God's grace and by his spirit. We're being changed into his likeness. Therefore, what would Jesus do is an entirely appropriate test of what is and is not good. There are some things which are clear scripture about. There are other things which are not. But even so, we can apply some tests about is this good? Does it honor God? Does it build me up in my most holy faith? Does it, does it cause me to live in a way which is, which, is, which is disciplined and healthy? We are not saved by Jesus to go on sinning as we did but to be reformed, remade. Jesus saves, separates his people from their sins. All right? And to him who has loved us and saved us from, washed us from our sins, washed us from our sins. Not just washed us from this sin, so I do it again and do it again and do it again. His work is to separate us from our past and our previous way of life. So we are to separate ourselves to him. This instruction comes with a warning. Pursue this sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Those who do not pursue and seek sanctification and separation will not see God. Should that be surprising to us? You see, you know, if you don't wish to have his presence and favor above everything else now, why do you imagine you're going to enter into this wonderful inheritance then? 
That's a strange thing. I mean, C.S. Lewis talked about that. If you don't love God and enjoy his presence now, why do you imagine you will in heaven? If heaven is not what you want and long for now, then don't imagine that somehow it's all going to change then. But I said last week that holiness is not natural to us. That loving God is not natural to us. That our fallen human nature rebels against and resists being drawn close to him and to share in his holiness. There's a thought deep within our hearts that we will try to do only enough to get by. And I've had this conversation with some people. If I can just make it to heaven, you know, by the skin of my teeth, as we say, why would you make that your goal? Why on earth would you imagine that that is a goal worth having? Oh, it's all right if I just about sneak in through the side door. That's crazy. That's like saying, I know there's a cliff, at, you know, the, uh, there's a collapse of a cliff in the south of England recently, golf course, oh, my heart bleeds for them. They're, you know, they've lost some of their golf course into the sea. Oh, dear. There's a, there's a separation here between the shadow and the light. You, you can't all see it. But I'm like, I'm on the edge, I'm on the edge, I'm all right, I'm all right. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm all right. Why are you doing? This is stupid. Why are you walking on the edge? Why would any Christian think, that's the way I'm going to live my life, just on the edge? Let me tell you in plain English, that is plain stupid. We read last week the scripture that speaks of the man losing everything by the fiery trial of God's judgment in Corinthians, yet being saved so as by fire. Do not make that your ambition. Do not make that your aim. I wonder whether anybody said, as we were looking at that, they said, well, that'll be me then. Please, cancel the thought. Reject it. Embrace grace. Why do we think to settle for less than drawing near to God, taking hold of his grace and running, fighting, enduring in faith, pursuing holiness in the fear of the Lord? That's 2 Corinthians. Because there is still sin in our hearts. Deep within us, we still want to get away with something. We still want a bit of rebellion to hang on to. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, how do I respond to that statement? You know I can see up there what you see here, which is why I point that way. I know it's confusing, but I could go like that, but I'm, I'm seeing it. Okay, just to explain, those of you who are new. How do you respond and re react to that? Oh, dear. Oh, my. Oh, Lord. Or do you say, please? Please, Lord. Let me give you an example. David, when he had committed adultery and he'd organized the death of the man whose wife he'd stolen and he hid it deliberately, the whole thing. It was known to a few of his compatriots who had a power over him afterwards because of the, they knew his secret. And God sends a prophet called Nathan who exposes the whole thing. And in Psalm 51, which I urge you to read when you get a few minutes, this is what David cries out to the Lord. Create in me a clean heart, O God, 
and renew a steadfast spirit within me. The pure in heart will see God. So my prayer is, create in me a clean heart, O God. A godly man, a wise woman will say, Lord, then, then, then hear, hear in my heart. Another psalm, David says, search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me, and test me, and show me if there's any wicked way in me. Dangerous prayer. But if the pure in heart will see God, we better start praying those kind of dangerous prayers. Or do you think the Bible means what it says? What happens when we choose not to pursue sanctification? The next verse tells us it. We fall short of the grace of God. Oh, I've just done something to my notes. I'll get there in a minute. So let's read this. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. We fall short of the grace of God. See to it that there be no immoral or godless person, like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, I've got to move again because the light's in my eyes, even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. There are three statements there. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up, causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. See to it that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, not out there in the world, we can't, we can't fix the world, among us. The context is among us, it's written to Christians. Let me talk for a minute or two here about see to it that no one misses the grace of God. It doesn't say fall short of the standard, does it? It's not a reference to law. It's not saying the same thing as Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not falling short because you don't glorify him and therefore you've, you, you're sinful because you don't glorify him. Don't miss his grace. That's an interesting and a different statement. You can fail to receive and live in the grace of God. You can be self-dependent rather than God-dependent. You can be proud in yourself and think, I'm okay, I can do it. And you miss the grace of God. In fact, pride is the very root of sin and it's the root of decline and decay of character, even in Christians. A man says in his heart, I'm all right, I'm strong, I'm not going to mess up. Famous last words, aren't they? Yeah. It's like the skateboarder. Watch this! Yeah. <laughs> or the guy driving his motorbike too fast around a bend. Hey! Whoa! Pride comes before a fall. The man who isn't dependent, submissive, grateful, thankful, that man will fail in character, morally, whatever, before too long because he's not what he thinks he is. And he's not taking hold of the grace of God. You cannot live a Christian life out of your own resources. You don't have them. You need God's supply. It's called grace. And it's the failure or refusal to get grace. We read it in Hebrews 14. To boldly come and receive grace and mercy to help you in time of need. My time of need is just about every day. I don't know about you. 
But failure to get grace causes you to actually get up, to go worse. You're battling away, battling away, thinking you've got to, you've got to do it in your own strength. You don't do it in your own strength. Get grace. Don't miss the grace of God. Yeah? It's not about what, how, how strong you feel or how, how positive you can speak about things and what you decree and declare or don't decree and declare. It's about finding the grace of God. And we're to come boldly to receive it. Grace and mercy. And grace is more than forgiveness. It's the empowering of God's presence so you live the way that he loves to see in you, that he will reward when he sees it in you. God empowers us to live the way he wants us to and rewards us for doing so. Isn't that extraordinary? But it's called, that's because that's it's grace. What he, the very thing he's empowered you to do, he's going to reward you for. Well, that's not fair. No, it's called grace. Now let me deal with this root of bitterness. Now, I, I was saying to a couple of bits this morning that this week I've, I've had to work really hard, and this is not boasting, right? I've had to work really hard at study this week because what I found is going through these verses that we're looking at today, I've had to change my mind on a couple of things. And here's one of them. I've always been told that this root of bitterness is about envy, resentment, attitude towards other people. Yeah? And I've seen this week, no, that's fruit. Root is something else. Here's the currency of this phrase, where it comes from. Deuteronomy 29. Moses delivering his last sermon at the end of Deuteronomy to the people of Israel before he is taken by the Lord. So that there will not be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. That there will not be among you a root-bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. Do you see where the root is? It's the heart turning away from God. That's the root. Dealing badly with other people is fruit. It's, the, it's what gets produced by that. But the root is a heart that has rebelled against God. That's what a root of bitterness is speaking about. And that phrase turns up in the prophets. Uh, as uh, poisonous fruit, wormwood, gall. And then listen to Peter speaking to Simon the magician in the book of Acts. I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. He's quoting Deuteronomy. This man is not a Christian. He's not converted because his heart is still bitter and rebellious and wicked. Root of bitterness. This phrase, a root of bitterness, means a heart of sin, unbelief, and rebellion against God. In fact, it connects back to what we read many, many months ago in Hebrews 3. It takes me ages to get through the book of the Bible, doesn't it? Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you, amongst Christians, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That is the same thing as saying a root of bitterness. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still said today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. A root of bitterness springs up and defiles many. When somebody's got that attitude of heart, it has an effect upon others. Because it's communicated. 
In the history of Israel in the wilderness, the 40 years between leaving Egypt and entering Canaan, the people repeatedly rebelled against the Lord, which is what, which is what Moses called a root of bitterness springing up, causing trouble. Sorry, that's what Paul refers to there defiling many. Such rebellions often had particular ringleaders and God dealt severely with those people on each occasion. But one man is here mentioned in scripture as an example of someone who, again, come back to this phrase, failed to take hold of the grace of God. His name is Esau. Esau is an example of immorality and godlessness. By the way, the Greek word that's translated immorality is pornos. Sound familiar? All sexual behavior outside of the marriage covenant is pornos. That's the teaching of scripture. All sexual behavior outside of the marriage covenant is uncleanness, is immorality. It's not this act or that act and this partner or that partner. It all is pornos. And godlessness is being without God or knowing about God but rebelling against God. And here, again, this is not talking here about people who are way out there. It's talking about some people who may be around church but are living without regard and respect to God. So this example of Esau, Esau lived in a godly household. They had their faults, his mom and dad. <laughs> but Isaac was the son of Abraham and a man of faith. Yet Esau is clearly identified to us here as an immoral and godless man. He sold his birthright inheritance to his brother Jacob for a pot of stew. Now, he may have been hungry, but that hungry? Now, the scripture quote summarizes that whole thing in the end of Genesis 22, I think it is, by saying he despised his inheritance. Didn't think anything of it. Despised it. There was a deep flaw in Esau's character and attitude. He was a rebel against his father Isaac. He despised his inheritance. In his rebellion, he married pagan wives because he knew it would upset his mum and dad. And really also was a rebellion against God. The Jewish scholars, by the way, go beyond the Bible record and actually have a name for him. He was a man of vice. A man of vice. And the day came, having sold his birthright and he's married these, these pagan women and so on, when his father thought he was dying. Isaac actually recovered and lived a few more, quite a few more years. But Isaac thought he was dying and it was time to give his blessing to his firstborn. Now Esau was the firstborn. He'd already sold his inheritance for a pot of stew, but he still would have had the blessing of being the firstborn. But Jacob gets dressed up to look like, to feel like, Isaac, to, to feel like Esau and his mum's plotting with him and he goes in and he takes Esau's blessing. I don't want to go into all of the things about it this morning. And having received the firstborn's blessing instead of Esau, Esau then comes in and says, I'm here, Dad, you know, here's the stew I've made for you. And, well, who did I just bless then? And if you read the account there, it says that Esau tried again and again and wept bitterly before his father. Please, father, bless me, bless me, father. And it says here that he sought repentance with tears. Now, let me explain that to you because this is often misunderstood as well. 
Esau was not seeking his own repentance with tears. He was asking his father to change his mind. Don't bless him, bless me, bless me, bless me. Too late. He could not change what had already been done and his, his tears were pointless, fruitless. He could not bring about a change of that blessing. We do, have, we do really do have to go back and check things there. See, this scripture is not saying if you mess up, you can never repent. It is not saying that. Esau was an immoral and godless person who lived his whole life in rebellion, as far as we know from Scripture. He was not a good man gone bad. He was a man who never took hold of the grace of God. Don't let any one of us be like Esau, who despised and traded his inheritance to fill a temporary appetite. And when the reckoning came, was tearful and, and, and remorseful and all the rest of it, but it was too late. Don't value your inheritance in Messiah Jesus as lightly as that. Now, where does that work out for us when we're faced with this choice? Do I stand as a Christian and resist this thing and say no to this thing? Or do I just, do I just take hold of this little bit of whatever it is along the way? You're trading inheritance for passing pleasure. You're trading eternal glory, maybe even for temporary, temporary pros pros prosperity. I could be a preacher and say you're trading posterity for prosperity. Don't make the trade. Esau did. Don't do it. Don't be like him. And we're to see to it that there's no one like that. Let me go through the see to it again. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many be defiled. Because the root produces fruit, it, it gets transferred into others. How? Because when someone's got a bad attitude of heart towards God, they have a bad attitude towards other people, and especially people in Christian authority, because they kind of somehow represent God to some extent. And so they... And they pick holes and coats the righteous. They, oh, but he's got... Oh, she's got... Oh, look at them. Don't talk about me. Look at them. That's only fruit, by the way. The root is their heart towards God. See to it. There isn't that going on. It's brute of bitterness, which is a heart issue towards God. Bringing causes trouble. By it, many are defiled, made filthy, made dirty, brought into the mess. See to it that there's no immoral or godless person like Esau. Who must see to it? You don't want to say it, do you? Us! We must see to it. It's a command. It's an instruction. We must see to this for ourselves and for others. Keep watch over yourself. Be prepared to be challenged and corrected for a bad attitude and actions. Have care and concern for your brothers and sisters. Be ready to challenge them in love. Salt and peace. You speak truthfully in love because you want to see them built up in the peace of God. That doesn't mean we ignore wrongdoing. You understand? And a bad attitude. We don't ignore it. That's not pursuing peace. That's not building up. We need to sometimes confront one another, challenge one another in grace. This is how to pursue sanctification. How to pursue this stepping, foot, stepping up, setting apart, wanting to live for God. 
Number first one is be honest. The last thing in the world that we need is more hypocrisy. The world challenges us that Christians are hypocrites and whatever, and sometimes they have a real point. Be honest about who you are and the way you live. You're looking for help. You're looking for encouragement. You're looking for correction. Then be engaged with Scripture. We're washed by His Word, it says. God's Word is sharper than a two-edged sword. So be open to the, to be ready to the open heart surgery of Scripture. You know, we were joking outside about me beating people up with preaching on Sunday. I said, listen, guys, I get beaten up when I'm preparing it. You know? <laughs> the open heart surgery of God. Scripture cuts through. Oh, wow, ouch. That just touched me there, Lord. Oh, wow. Our hearts are revealed and, please God, by His grace, reformed, remade by God's Word. So don't be a hero who goes, goes away and forgets what they've heard. Be engaged with fellow believers. Be engaged with them. Um, I don't know if I'm going to even get there, but a slide later on talks about, you know, this thing about truth is both personal and corporate. This is not about me and my blessing and my personal prophecy. And, you know, it's not just individual. Christianity is corporate. It's a shared experience of life and faith. We're here for one another, to build one another up. So be engaged with fellow believers where there's some honesty and openness and you pray for one another. In fact, to go on further from what we looked at last week with James talking about praying for, for people who are sick and praying for their forgiveness. He sums up there by saying, therefore confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. <laughs> that is not in the Catholic Bible but cut out of the Protestant one, you know. That's... That's true for us. We're to confess our faults to one another and pray for one another. Not so we go to the forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness all day, but we get grace. We don't fall short of the grace of God. Finding grace which equips us to live for Him, to change and be changed. Be engaged with fellow believers. I mean in real life, not just dressed up on a Sunday in clothes and behavior. Let godly people into spaces in your life so that they influence you. Because ungodly people will find those spaces. Bad people will find those spaces. Make spaces in your life. Times in your week when you keep company with God's people. And, are, and receive input and encouragement. And you can do the same to them. Avoid bad company. Choose your companions well. And be open to instruction and correction. Be open to instruction and correction. That's how we pursue sanctification. But you know what? I am going to stop that sermon there for this week. We'll come back next week to carry on with A Tale of Two Mountains from verse 18. Hebrews is written to a Christian community. They're from the Jewish background, the Hebrew people. And as persecution is coming around the corner from the Roman Empire, if they deny Jesus and revert back into being Jews and Judaism, they'll be protected by the law. But if they keep proclaiming the name of Jesus, that Jesus is Messiah and Lord God, 
then they're going to bear the brunt of the persecutions coming against the church at that time. So the whole book is written to them in that crisis. But it has lessons for us. We're not in the same sort of crisis. But the temptation to nurture our little bits of rebellion, our wanting to walk on the edge of life, even, even this foolish ambition to, you know, well, if I just get there by the skin of my teeth, kind of thing. Whereas the Word of God tells us that we are to aim for His commendation, for His well done. Paul could say at the end of his life, I've run the race, I've kept the fight. Before me is the crown of righteousness which the Lord has laid up for me. He knew, listen, this might sound ridiculously boastful, he knew that he had done well in serving his master. Why do we think of ourselves as being so much less? Why do we have such a hopeless attitude towards living this Christian life? Well, number one, because we've tried to do it in our own resources and it doesn't work. It won't work. We need to get grace. Number two, because the minute we fail, we try to make an excuse for ourselves and point to somebody else. Yeah, but him, look, look. we all, yeah. Rather than, rather than making, you know, David was a thorough sinner. But what's his prayer? Oh, God, please cleanse me. Change my heart. Renew right spirit. Cause me again to walk in your ways, to paraphrase him. So let me say to you this morning, just to apply this now pastorally, because we've stopped with my notes. Right? <laughs> I've got, already got a sermon prepared for next week. We are. <laughs> whatever your position right now, whatever attitude of heart you've found yourself in, and maybe what I've said to you this morning has been very challenging, you have a moment right now to find the grace of God. You have a moment right now to repent and to turn to Him, to have a change of mind, a change of heart. God's grace is available to you right now because Jesus died on the cross. Now, I've got a lot more to say about that than I have to be next week. God's grace is available to us because the the supply and and, and the delivery of His grace is completely authorized by Jesus Himself on the basis of having died on the cross. You don't do anything to earn, to merit, to work, to gain, you receive by gift from heaven because Jesus has paid for it. In that sense, it is free grace, but it cost him everything. But right now, let me declare this to you, if I can use that expression. Free grace from heaven is available to you for the healing of your heart, for the reshaping of your life, for the redirection of your feet. Right now. Shall we pray? Yes. If you sense your your need to be honest before God right now and to speak to Him about something, do it, please. I'm closing my iPad so I don't look at my notes. That stays next week. Please open your heart to Him. Have an honest conversation with Him.
Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we worship you. Lord of all grace, Lord of all mercy. Lord Jesus, please cause us to be people of peace who live in and by your grace and influence others for good, not for evil. Come and shape our attitudes and our words, our conversation and our behavior that we pursue what is positive and good and right and builds up one another and is an influence to the world whether they receive it gladly or not is not our problem. May we be those who pursue with honesty and integrity being pure in heart, being peacemakers so that we bear your image, the image of God we can see in Jesus, a man who is God made flesh. We see what that's like and we admire it, but also know we're called to be that too. To learn to be like Jesus. So Jesus, my master, please, for many of us right now, we are being honest with you and we say, come and remake my heart. Holy Spirit, come and challenge me about the, my attitudes and my speech and my actions towards others. So that amongst us, Lord, there may be a, an atmosphere of building one another up, which will include at times challenging one another about a bad attitude or bad behavior. We read, Lord, last week, you discipline us for our good that we might share in your holiness. And this week we learned that we have a little part to play in that, in encouraging one another and even challenging one another because we are pursuing the same thing, to live by the grace of God for the glory of God. May we learn more and more what that looks like and how that is, so that Jesus might receive all the honor that is due to his name. Amen. 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 Good. We're going to break.